Welcome to the show. This is the Bot Brothers, AI for Educators. I'm Mike Pearson. I'm Pat Burns. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Miss Stephanie Beck. Stephanie's not only an old friend of ours, but she's also a high school librarian. Prior to that, she was the director of libraries at an American school in Lima, Peru. She also holds a bachelor's degree in math and theater, a master's of library and information science, a master's in school administration, and is currently pursuing a master's in instructional design. Wow, she has got a ton of degrees and quite the vita. We are super excited to talk to her about how she's seeing AI in her classroom. Um, Stephanie, did I miss anything in that run up to you? Um, a master of personalities? No. <laughs> no, that was, I know, it sounds very stuffy, all of the uh, the degree collecting that takes place. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I have three degrees and Pat has three degrees. And I think part of Ed is that you keep on getting degrees. But all of them have led to like really cool opportunities. So the, like my admin degree is what allowed me to move overseas to be the director of libraries in Peru, which was a really cool opportunity to work in a totally different teaching environment than the public school system that I grew up as a part of and that I've been working in, you know, previously for the last seven years. Oh, wow. I actually didn't know that about you. That's awesome. Uh, Just to shift things a little bit. So AI came out in November. And our last episode, we were talking about the, the sheer velocity of, of how quickly the landscape is changing. Twitter's are buzz. Um, I think every industry is a buzz with, with AI. So we invited you on because we're, we're very curious as what librarians and, and people that work with data are talking about. So in, in your field, in, you know, what conversations have you had with colleagues? What is everyone talking about? Are, are they worried? Are they not worried? Like, what's going on you know, from your perspective? So... I will say that where I first really started diving into understanding where other librarians were at was on forums for international school libraries. Um, they, there's a, a a lack of fear and a, a more ex, like excited perspective that comes across. Um, it was. I think originally met with, we have to wrap our heads around this. We have to get to know this because we have to know how to teach with it. It was never a, we have to shut this down or a fear of, of the tools themselves. But I think that librarians went through this with Wikipedia already, you know, like Wikipedia was a tool that really scared a lot of librarians, but you see how a tool can be useful, how it can't replace critical thinking Um, And a librarian, if you're looking at like the research perspective, is always about process. You know, you you start with brainstorming, you start with keywords, you start building your collection of sources and pulling information, creating questions from those sources. It's all about process. It's not about a final product always. And so this is a tool that will continue to add to that process. And in fact, I think there's a lot of positives about helping students get energized or reinvigorated. Like how often do students sit and stare at a blank screen? I don't know where to start. You can ask AI to give you a prompt. If you like it, great. Now let's start searching. Let's start finding some some information that can support what you think or educate you about this if you don't know anything about it. So I think there's um, there's definitely a lot of optimism around it. Um, but of course the, uh, the looming citation and plagiarism, uh, question 
which has will always be will always be are librarians overly talking about that because in english departments it seems like that's been the conversation is that true also for librarians that they're talking about citing well citing and plagiarism and how how do you cite a large language model Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's the Modern Language Association have already come out with a proper way to cite um, like AI generated research and responses. If it's either just a bibliographic entry or if it's an in-text citation, there are formal rules that have already been set forth by MLA. I don't know about APA. Those are the two most common that we use at our school. Um, so it's not... It's not something that is like overly um, being like we don't we haven't seen evidence of students, you know, copying and pasting everything. Right. Is it happening? It, it might. It probably is. Let's be honest. But I do think that you'll see similarities like we were seeing. Um, there was a, a science fiction magazine that uh, will publish. Have you? You're nodding. I see you nodding. That yeah. John Scalzi article, yeah. and they were getting so many submissions um, because they pay well. It's hard to make money as a writer. They pay well, and they were getting so many submissions that had such similar vocabulary, syntax, and a lack of voice that they were like, what is going on with these submissions for these short stories for us to publish? And they found out that they were all AI generated. And Stephanie, to be clear, that, the, the article you're referencing, that was in relationship to, was it just people trying to get published in the magazine or was it a contest or could you clarify that? Yeah, it was just a, a to be published because they pay for short stories. They pay per word. Mm-hmm. So people are just quickly saying, well, I just have AI generate something, try to get published, cash in. Uh, yeah, okay, fair enough. Exactly. With new technologies, there's uh, always grifters, right? Right. But I, I don't think that they're always like corruptors, but they are people who are like trying to leverage it, right? How can I help this tool work for me? Are the library sciences currently leveraging the tool or are there tools that they're using or tools that they're looking at? Yeah, so I think that in terms of using like um, large language models like ChatGPT or Bard, where you can type something in, you can have a conversation with them so you can practice your language skills with them. So I'm, I'm learning Spanish so I can have a conversation with ChatGPT in Spanish and it'll correct my writing or, you know, talk back with me. So it's a way that... Um, you can you can use it uh, for something like that, but um, there's also the I know uh, we had talked briefly about Elicit, the research, the AI research model. Um, there's this this wonderful librarian in Asia. Her name is Jerry Hurd, and she has this whole like um, outline of ways in which Elicit can be helpful. How you can use it to help save time. Um, the pros and cons of it, it's not very humanitarian front, like not humanity, humanities. <laughs> I don't want to say humanitarian friendly. That is not what I meant. <laughs> it's not very well suited for the humanities. It's really great for the sciences, but that's right. because the software, the way it works, it will summarize your articles for you, including like the findings. It uses the scientific model of like a traditional research paper. So it could take that abstract. It will summarize the abstract for you. It can summarize the participants. It can say what the outcomes were. So it'll summarize a scientific research article for you 
which can be very helpful. However, if you want it to summarize a narrative analysis for you, it is not very good at that. So there's some limitations on some of the tools. I just like, I'll check in and play around with them here and there. Um, my current school, I think that elicits a little, uh, it's pretty advanced academically. Uh, not a lot of my students are reading uh, scientific research articles or journal articles. Um, I will say on the international level, they've got uh, the International Baccalaureate Program, their extended essay. A lot of students will use data sets and scientific-backed research when they're composing those. So I think it's much more helpful in saving them time uh, in terms of whether or not an article will be helpful for their research, how many other times it's been cited, who else is citing it, is that person somebody else that they've read so they can gather it, the credibility of a source. So it's it's kind of like short like a, a a shortcut for lateral reading when you're going through and and summarizing you know the quality of your sources as you're gathering do you know does elicit go into databases or is it only publicly available data or pdfs that's a great question i don't know the answer to okay um i think people would be interested in the pros and cons sheet so if you could um could you send us that link and then we'll post it after the show yeah, sure, certainly. Okay, great, awesome. Um, so you're not using Elicit really so much in your school. Are there other AI programs you're looking at or using? There are so many that honestly, and this is this is just me. There are many that librarians are talking about. I personally took a step away from trying to stay on top of all of them because I think the philosophy of how we use it is more important than what it can do at this point in time. Because I just think that where the technology is not threatening enough for us to be too worried about the product that it can can produce. Are, are you finding too that, that like, it sounds like your experience is not maybe all that different from, I imagine probably a lot of teachers where there's so many, because there's so many different programs being created, that sense that you mentioned of, of being hard to stay on top of things. On some level, I, there's a part of me that kind of wonders, do we just kind of wait and just kind of see which ones kind of fall by the wayside and become kind of obsolete uh, or otherwise it's maybe not as useful as we think um, and that maybe some of the stronger programs might just develop over time. So so it's okay to maybe hold off for now. I, I, do, do you have that sensibility with some of the stuff in your realm or no? I think so. I think we saw some of that with the rise in wikis because wikis, anybody could make one, anybody could contribute to one, depending on what the screening process was, depending on the contributor and the owner. I, I, I do think it'll be... Um, a process where we'll see how the technology grows and what is being fed to the generators because it only knows what we tell it. And no matter how smart we think computers are, they're only as smart as the people programming them, which can lead to a lot of problems with AI. I think that's a great kind of segue to it because we were, we were thinking about, you know, the ways we've all, all seen those articles talking about bias uh, you know, how, how do you see things like bias or, or yeah, we'll just start with that, uh, just kind of impacting, uh, you know, I guess your work, but also impacting maybe the way you see maybe students being uh, influenced uh, from, the, from the AI generated uh, programs? Um, well, I think there's, there's two ways to look at a question about, about bias, and that is the information that we're getting and also the, the expectations of who will be using it or not. 
So if we talk about the the latter first, because I think it's a, a little bit of a quicker conversation, um, is that I think that it's a, a great uh, equity. It could be a great equity tool because for years, uh, spoiler alert for people who didn't know, people who have money and wealth will pay other people to write their papers for them. Now with something like ChatGPT, it can level the playing field so that somebody who doesn't have the money to pay for a private tutor, or like I said, a Spanish tutor, somebody to practice your language skills with, um, it can really level the playing field. Not that I want to encourage people to pay other people to, to write their papers. I will be clear about that. <laughs> I just think it can be an equalizer um, for people who have never been able to uh, do something like that or request feedback. You know, you can say, please give me qualitative feedback on how I can improve this paragraph, put in your writing, see what it gives you back. So you're not erasing your voice in your writing and you are getting some kind of feedback about how to improve your writing. If you're looking for any grammar or, you know, spelling check that our blue lines and, and red line squiggles don't uh, catch for us. I think what can be when we talk about the content that is being given back to us, what we ask for, again, the AIs only know what it's been fed. And if we look at what kind of information has been published and written about and studied over millennia, or I guess at least one, like a hundred, the last hundred years, you know, it's a lot of white European perspectives. If that's the only thing that we're feeding it or that it's getting information from, then we're missing out on, you know, oral traditions or implied politics or, you know, any number, like so much rich information that we are missing out on because it's not something that was fed to these machines. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm, that makes me think. So other countries are developing large language models, like China, for example, and you know, they're going to do a massive one. And I would assume every other country is doing them as well. And so it seemed to me that those countries, because they're going to be doing their, their cultures, it's not going to be the Western tradition, of course. You're going to, you'll have stories from, from China, from Japan, from wherever, and it won't be, it won't be in English. I, I don't think you program in English in those countries. That would be weird. So I, I wonder at some point if there'll be some sort of integration. I do. I think that, yeah, no, I think that it could be, but that's also in a world where we can all access each other's models. Right. Yeah. Well, it seems to me too. And, and, and there's been com conversations kind of percolating up about the ways in which AI can be monetized. And, and so, you know, you take something like ChatGPT already, there's already a tier system, right? So if you have ChatGPT4, you're paying maybe 20 bucks a month for it. Or if you want the free version or the 3.0 or 3.5 or what have you, then it's free, which is fine. But there is a difference between three and four. Um, you know, four is definitely more precise. And, and, and I've, I've kind of compared those two. And, and you can notice the difference. And you almost kind of wonder to your point of like, you know, people who have the, the, the means to afford kind of better versions of these ling large language models. And of course, other companies are kind of jockeying for different data sets that, um, yeah, it might give somebody a competitive advantage, not only so certainly in the business realm, but even you know even in the school realm, uh, and and that that can that's something that, that has to be considered. I, I guess you know on that point, uh, you may be going in a slightly different direction, but it's, it's still sort of topical in terms of like inclusivity. Do you, how how do you see maybe AI functioning as a way to maybe foster or build inclusivity? Because it seems like what we've been talking about is how it might be actually problematic. But where do you see maybe avenues? 
uh, or routes for uh, kind of uh, just developing inclusivity within a school uh, with AI. I, I think it's all about how you instruct um, students and guide them to use it. You know, it's same the same. I, I I feel like it's a lot of the same stuff that I did with Google searches, like with with ChatGPT or other AI generators. You need to be. And you guys touched on this on your prompt writing episode. The more specific you are, the better your result will be, right? So if I wanted to ask something about World War II soldiers, I'm going to get a plethora of information about World War II soldiers. But if I specifically say, you know what, I want to ask a question about Black World War II soldiers, like I, it's going to narrow down my results, but it draws attention to the fact that, you know what, I'll bet you anything that Black World War II soldiers were not at the top of the list of my search results when I searched World War II soldiers. And it draws attention to like the white norm to our society and which goes back to, again, like how these things are built. So for inclusivity, I think uh, it all has to come down to either probing the AI to give me a perspective that is not included, which as a student, how do you know what you don't know? Mm -hmm. You know, like, is there only one point of view that's being represented? Okay. Mm -hmm. What point of view is missing? Who else could be in this room that it does not have a voice? Mm -hmm. Who's not in the room who has an opinion or a voice on the, the issue in which you are, are looking at or reading about or writing about? I, so I think that's, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I think that's great because it seems to be speaking to that idea that at the end of the day, we, we have to find systems or, or provide systems uh, in place where teachers can be educated on how to, uh, I guess, foster that kind of approach, right? That that that, that seems to be really, really crucial. And I, I mean, I, I, I'm not so sure about but your situation or kind of where things, the trajectory of, say, your district. I, I think that I imagine a lot of districts are kind of not quite sure what to do, but they need to start figuring out what to do. Uh, they need to start having some processes in place and teacher training's got to be near the top of that list, I would think. I mean, I think teacher trains and also like <laughs> having a certified librarian, like this is what librarians do. And when the internet came of age, people started thinking, we have everything at our fingertips. We don't need the help finding it anymore. They didn't have the foresight to see how the proliferation of information would overtake us. And the more important element becomes not finding information, but finding the right information and discerning this information and figuring out, you know, what's real, what's not. And that gets harder and harder. So I think having a librarian on your staff, being able to leverage this kind of thinking about processing your sources, really thinking about where they're coming from. And then as a classroom teacher, having somebody else in the room to help with process checks along the way so that we're not waiting until the very end when somebody, you know, spits out a paper and they're citing these sources that you were like, wait, but that wasn't in your research along the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great point. So yes to yeah. teacher trainings, but also hire librarians. Right. Yeah. I mean, a librarian's an information specialist. That's, that's the job. And um, the internet is all this information plus information that is being created. But large language models are just going to like automatically create information. And there's therefore going to be a lot of noise. And so the question becomes, how does one sort the noise? So that's, there's, there is, there's a lot of noise. I actually have two examples of people I know who have had 
ChatGPT specifically, give them information with sources, and then they asked for citations for those sources, and then they went out and found them. And I have two examples where they could not find the source. And one was just not there. Like ChatGPT was like, oh, I'm sorry, that wasn't really a source, but it was written by somebody who is a knowledgeable person in the field by a publication who would publish this person's work. Um, and the other one was, that was like a library example. There was another example by an economist in at uh, University of Chicago. He was like, I never wrote that paper. I would have loved to. It sounds like a great paper. <laughs> so, well, so, so you're seeing though that in those examples that, that ChatGPT was what they call hallucinating, right? It was just coming up, fabricating essentially sources that seem real, but they're not. So when you checked it with the actual original author, you're like, that's just not a real thing, right? Which is why it's so important, I think, to teach not just like citation skills, but how to read a bibliography and like checking each other's work, right? Like if I'm a student and my friend found this source, like, let me go ahead and see if I can find it from the bibliography. So you're practicing your searching skills because sometimes you're like, is it just me? Am I a bad searcher? Or is it behind a paywall and I can't find it? Mm-hmm. Or is it made up? And how many of our students are going to take that extra step? <laughs> oh, but to that point, how often do you realize it's even made up? I mean, some of them look really legit. I spent probably about five, 10 minutes trying to track down a, a source a week ago from a student whose paper seemed like it was AI generated. And I kept looking and looking and looking. And I spent a, a fair amount of time, I thought, just trying to track it down. And I'm like, it seemed like there are parts that seem to kind of work, but like I couldn't find it anywhere. I'm like, this is a bogus source. But then it made me wonder, I'm like, well, maybe my searching just needs to be improved. Maybe it's out there somewhere. I just couldn't find it. Right. Because we're reflective practitioners, right? Like we always think, well, maybe it is something that I can improve on myself. That's where I think the process really can come into play. If you're using a system to help gather your articles, so I, I really like using Scribble. It's a tool that I used before I went to South America. I used it in South America and now I'm using it again. It's an online um, like research tool where I can house my articles. I can annotate them. I can highlight them. I can. It's a very robust tool. It can create citations for me. But if I'm using that with my classes... And as an, a librarian, I can find articles and put them in there and be like, hey, I saw this and I thought it'd be helpful for you. Here you go. But uh, you can then check in on them and you can see what they're highlighting. You can see what they're reading or what their notes are. And so when you're, and then you could, they can create their bibliography there too. They can write their paper in there if they want to. So there's constant process checks along the way so that when you get to the point where you're like, all right, the students, I did this article. It sounds incredible, but let me see it. Mm-hmm. You can see it. Yeah. You know, that idea of having to curate, like what evaluate a source and which ones you use and, and how they're, that was one skill set. But with large language models, this could be another one. But I want to jump back to Pat, you'd said hallucinate. And that's, that's the term that people are using for when chat GPT makes things up. I tend to think of the hallucination as, as that chat GPT or LLMs are prob- probably machines. And that they'll they'll probably guess the next word like through a statistical model, but also for sources. So because ChatGPT is, is is a probably machine, if if it is trying to find research on some prompt that you gave it, and it's not there, but you asked it for a source, then it would make sense logically that the system would use the existing data of the people that write those types of things and maybe get the heavyweight that does most of it 
and generate a title that sounds convincing in the summary because that person probably could have written it but didn't. So you, so you get kind of like these made up sources. And then that makes me think of the, the marginalized voices discussion you were having. <clears throat> and, you know, the large language model is mostly trained on Western civilization stuff, which is predominantly white male. And then that makes me think about Siri and Alexa, how when those came out, it was a woman's voice and there was a discussion of equity again. Like, it, you know, that was a choice that was made. And that makes me think all the way back to grad school when I was, when I was young and all the academic writing is, it is, is that Western, like male, white male voice. And there was one woman that I remember that PhD and she was purposely subverting that, um, using like black vernacular. So it kind of, kind of, kind of to show that like it was equally powerful in the language because it is. And then just, it just makes me think about how like chat GPT is like, like, I don't know, just like Midwest language, like the language of just like radio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that I think ends up, that's where the, the question about like AI and how it can be, how it can be used to promote equity and inclusivity. It's bigger than just AI. It's our it's our whole society. It's our systems that are in place. So, being yeah, able to, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Here's the thought. I was gonna say being able to like leverage and um, amplify voices that we do not hear, which is the antithesis of everything that like Google has been working on. They try to keep you in your bubble and give you what you, they think you want to know. They're not interested in expanding your horizons. So that's where I think it really ends up being. Um, like a, a job security because we're still going to need teachers to teach us ways of thinking when we go out into the world and we're confronted with situations that that we weren't confronted with as we were growing up and our worlds were smaller. Yeah, you know that <laughs> that problematizes the idea of individualized education. Um, there's there's a there, you can imagine fairly quickly with large language models that you could create a complete individualized curriculum for a student and pat and i we've even talked about how how you can do that and how great it is but the more i think about it the problem with that is if if you keep if you can totally individualize someone's education then part of that might be that they that you don't get exposed to new ideas and part of the reason that you you go to a library or that you have a have a teacher is that there they may or may not select stuff that challenges how you think and it might just be like here read this think about that for a while and i don't care if you agree or not but think about it and you know it fundamentally can change you so woof. <laughs> but, but it's it exciting so because i feel like it's depressing but it's exciting because there's so much more potential to really see some kind of change in education when you say that, like what, what comes to mind when you say, see some kind of like change in what sorts of ways? I mean, obviously we've discussed some of these, but are there like kind of other thoughts that are behind that comment? Just the ways of, of like really starting to, and I know like what comes first, the chicken or the egg, this, you know, state standards and testing and where, where the values lie within um, the system of education as a nation, as a state, as a city, as granular as, as you want to get it. Um, but just really relying on critical and critical thinking and evaluation. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's interesting you say that because I think that sometimes, and we were talking about this in a previous interview that sometimes people think that the critical thing is going to go down. I'm not convinced that that's the case. I think if anything, it, it's that much more important 
for, for many reasons we've already discussed, right? That, it, that especially with all the information, the potential for misinformation really, uh, I mean, there's already plenty of that to go around, but it seems like that it could be like kind of hypercharged now. So it's that much more critical to figure out how to, how to help students kind of wade through it all. And I think it can be really empowering to them because they can then, they know what they know, they know what they don't know and how to inquire and how to learn and how to see through somebody's, you know, BS, but also really want to like, I think of it like this. If a student never learns how to read cursive, they for themselves will never know in America their Bill of Rights or the Constitution. Because it's written in cursive. So if you never learn that, like, are you just blindly trusting what the printed transcriptions are saying? What happens when there's a typo or somebody makes a mistake and it just proliferates? Like, you, we, have to, we have to be able to rely on um, critical thinking of the individuals and trusting that we know what we know and we know that there's stuff we don't know and that it's okay to learn and ask and inquire more deeply. Hmm. I appreciate that point because when, as you're going through that example, I was thinking, well, but, 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 and then what you helped me kind of realize is what you're saying is like with the, with cursive, like we tend to take, like, if you look up the bill of rights on say Wikipedia, we take it on faith that that's transcribed accurately but it may not be. I mean, I'm sure that is, but like it may not be or somebody can manipulate it down the line and we wouldn't know because we didn't bother to look at the original uh, format. That's that's I guess I never really thought about that so much that there are so many things we just kind of take on faith in that way. Uh, but to be able to verify is really, really important. What's that, Mike? I think of the horse and animal farm. Like they they, they, they keep on changing the, the list of 10 rules mm-hmm. and the horse can't figure it out, but he knows something's up and can't. Well, and it's and it's incremental, right? It's not necessarily a one-shot thing. So over time, you just kind of shave or trim or, or modify here and there. And the next thing you know, you have a totally different sort of kind of set of rules or whatever the case may be. Um, yeah, and then your reality is totally different. Uh, or you create new realities that maybe you didn't need to have, that maybe aren't necessarily as helpful as you think. Right. It's an exciting time to be like seeing seeing this develop and see how we can use it for good and be able to like educate and and just grow some awareness around some of the the dangers or pitfalls and not losing sight of you know the fact that we are humans. Yeah. Well, 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 I was gonna say that seems to me that's why it seems like it's that much more imperative for teachers to really engage in this stuff. Right uh, to really kind of understand what's going on, so that so that we can kind of steer the ship to the extent that we can, anyways, uh, the direction that A is is utilized at least in our field. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Stephanie, it sounds like on the whole you're excited about this new technology, but at the same time you're like it's similar to what's happened before. It underscores the need for librarians and teachers, and the need to again teach kids how to use these these new tools. But also at the same time, it, it almost seems like it moves critical thinking to the forefront. Uh, working with sources is, is probably more important than it ever has been. And also checking sources. Um, do you have a- anything to add to kind of my little summary right there? I, I think that's the gist of it. No, I don't think so. That's a great summary. You're such a good listener. Oh, thanks. Well, Stephanie, thank you for coming on the show. 
And and I would hope that in the future, as AI becomes more and more integrated, that um, we could have you back on. I'd love that. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Stephanie. All right. That's the Pop Brothers AI for Educators. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this show, please give us some stars, follow us, like us, share with your friends. We hope to keep on doing this. If you want to get in contact with us, it's the Bot Brothers on Twitter. So at the Bot Brothers. If you want to follow Stephanie, she's very active on Instagram. It's at BiblioStuff. Again, thanks for hanging out with us again today. Have a good one.